I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week I'm talking to Jill Partington, who studies weird pages and unconventional reading practices currently at Exeter University. And she has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on UbuWeb, Kenneth Goldsmith's online clearinghouse for the avant-garde. It's a review of a book by Goldsmith, Duchamp is my lawyer, the polemics, pragmatics and poetics of UbuWeb. But we'll be talking about the site more generally, some of the things you can find on it, and also some of the things that aren't catalogued on the site, but wouldn't be out of place there. That was some of Ursinate by Kirch Vitters, performed possibly by the artist himself and available on UbuWeb. Jill, that gives us some some idea of the kind of thing you can find on the on the website. But how? Wh- what is it? What is UbuWeb? UbuWeb is is an online archive of the avant garde, and it's been run by the poet and writer Kenneth Goldsmith since 1996. So he runs it single-handed and it's named after Pear Ubu, the character from Alfred Jerry's play, uh, who has a kind of voracious appetite. And similarly, Ubu Webb has a, has a kind of voracious appetite. So Goldsmith feeds endless amounts of stuff into it. Um, he started off with concrete poetry and then moved on to sound poetry and video and every imaginable experimental genre and it's kind of grown into a very well-known institution almost it's a it's a resource for everything experimental and avant-garde it's extremely eclectic so high and low silly and serious all come together and you can lose hours just kind of wandering around making strange new discoveries on ubu web and they and there isn't a distinction between the, the silly and the serious is there because it's i mean it has many subsections as it were but they're not divided in 
in those sorts of ways. So there was it. There are sounds, and, and so some, some of the some of the categories are kind of film and video, sound, dance, those kind of predictable ones. But then he also has the three hundred sixty five days project and outsiders and and sort of different ways of, and even those categories themselves are part of, part of his project. Yeah, it's all quite arbitrary. I mean, those categories are. I mean, they, I suppose the point is that there isn't any correct way to categorise things. And it's certainly not uh, organised by the Dewey Decimal System or any kind of uh, <laughs> any sort of um, conventional cataloguing system. But uh, yeah, I mean, that I think that's the interesting thing about it. So it has it has a, uh, a category called Outsiders that has things like Louis, Louis Farrakhan's Calypso songs. And these are like really weird kind of strange pop culture curios which find their way into Goldsmith's version of what the avant-garde is. The thing that you begin your piece with, which is Nicholas Sloninsky's singing a, a laxative ad to a variation on Rachmaninoff. Children cry for Castoria Yes, they fry for Castoria. Mother, relieve your constipated child. Hurry, mother, even a fretful, bilious, feverish child loves the pleasant taste of Castoria. Castoria, Castoria, oh. Gentle, harmless laxative Which never fails to sweeten the stomach And open the bowels It never cramps nor overacts Ask your druggist for genuine castoria All the instructions are printed in the bottle Children cry for castoria (laughs) It's obviously, I mean, it's very funny to, I mean that voice and and the subject of the of the song, um, and also putting the you know the music and the words that don't that don't fit, but somehow he makes them fit. Well, I I think the when he arrived as a Russian emigre in the sort of twenties or thirties in America, he was what struck him was this kind of uh, profusion of of media and the kind of all these strange uh, advertising texts that he was surrounded by that he you know he'd never really encountered before and i think it really tickled him so he somehow decided that these these could be repurposed he sort of squirreled away the the text of these uh, of these adverts and then recorded them later set them to music later decades later yeah he wrote it early on and then maybe recorded it for that plexi disc that was recorded much later. And do you think some of his interest is that, I mean, that interest in foreign words, that it wasn't that going from, from Russia to America and being mm. confronted with all this advertising, but also in a, in a foreign language. I mean, so I don't know how much of that pleasure in the way he sings bowels. <laughs> yeah, he's, there are certain words that he's really enjoying. But also I think it's just the ludicrous <laughs> quality of the, of, of the whole thing. Like, I think that's what, really appealed to him about these adverts was that they are ridiculous and there's something kind of funny about the idea that children would cry out for this constipation remedy 
I mean, I suppose the other thing about Ubu, the name, I mean, there is his voracious appetite, but also the play itself is a sort of a precursor of the 20th century avant-garde. There's a lot of sort of nonsense language in it and slang and obscenity and childishness or as perceived childishness. And so that spirit is is very strong in Goldsmith as well. Yeah, so I think Goldsmith, the one, the thing that he wants to take from the the avant-garde is not the sort of Marinetti version of of this sort of uh, stern jawed machismo. I think he's more interested in the the, the kind of mischievous and the scatological um, and the the kind of subversive spirit of Jerry. And one of the sort of amazing things about a lot of the stuff on Ubu Web, it's almost that people have actually gone to the trouble of making it because a lot of the things you th- it's that they sound like a kooky or a fun idea wouldn't it be fun if you did a mashup of the opening of the sound of music and apocalypse now or set the words of a laxative ad to a variation of Rachmaninoff or whatever but they've actually <laughs> gone and, and then have done it and it, you say in your piece at one point that it's the concept that matters not the content and of course that's right because these are their conceptual works but something happens to the concept, doesn't it, by it being actually executed or, or realised. Because watching Vicky Bennett, which unfortunately we can't watch it on a podcast, but watching the beginning of those two movies put together, it's quite a strange experience. I mean, it's much stranger than you'd think it would be just hearing about it. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. So some of these things sound like they're one-liners, like um, a bit glib even. But I think the point is that often their experiments in in reading or watching as much as their experiments in writing. So, in other words, the interesting thing is what happens when you try to read them. I mean, you you were sort of talking to me earlier about um, Claude Klosky's first thousand numbers in alphabetical order, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to do, and it also sounds you know, like a, a crazy concept. But the point is to, that, it, that it's about um, what happens when you try to, to read that. So it's not so much a kind of experiment in doing it as an experiment in, in what happens when you, you know, <laughs> what is it like to read the first thousand numbers in alphabetical order? Yeah, yeah. from eight to 222. Well, yeah, I mean, the, fir- the first, you know, maybe the first 30 are interesting or... <laughs> the best but after that what happens would you would you do that now would you read the first 30 numbers eight 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 hundred and eighty six, eight hundred and eighty three, eight hundred and eighty two, eight hundred and eleven, eight hundred and fifteen, eight hundred and fifty, eight hundred and fifty eight, eight hundred and fifty five. It's quite hard to read. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to know whether you've already read that line before. But also they come as a surprise. Yeah. Some of them, because you get, you think you're into that, you're hearing the rhythm and you think you're hearing them as you would hear numbers. And then suddenly that, you know, the five comes out of nowhere, that 850. Yeah. You think, whoa, where that 50 come from? It's it's quite a challenge. It, also, it feels a bit like counting, but you're not. You're mm. reading. 
So <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's quite odd. And also, at some point, you would just get completely lost because how do you know you you, you there's no narrative, so you would have no way of knowing whether you'd already read those numbers. I think this, there's a similar point about Kenneth Goldsmith's work himself. So he insists that he's unreadable. Like he boasts about being kind of the most boring writer that ever lived and his books are unreadable. But the point is that you can only find that out with the book in your hand. So something like Day, which is a book Goldsmith published, which is the entire contents of the New York Times from September the 1st, 2000, but published in book form, a 900-word book. It's not just a free-floating weird concept it's not just a kind of thought experiment it's an investigation into what a book is and how how you read it so to read a newspaper obviously involves a kind of a sort of visual scanning uh, a navigation of the page which involves picking up on visual cues of headlines and, and subheadings and kind of finding your way around various different articles and deciding which bits you want to read but in goldsmith's book all of that formatting is stripped away, leaving a 900-page book of, of quite dense text that asks to be read um, in, a, in a different register. So you're not processing it for news. You're reading it um, as, as literature. So something that was ephemeral suddenly you know, becomes quite weighty in a literal sense that it's a 900-page uh, book but um but also it's kind of looks a bit like it's it's kind of it's suddenly the the great american novel rather than you know yesterday's news and got, well, the other thing about that of course is that's hard to reproduce on a website isn't it the idea that yeah. the physical yeah. the heavy book and that's something that you've um when you've written about that as well on the lrb blog the bit where you calculated the, the surface area of hillary mantel's the mirror and the light and the idea of these I mean, how many copies of that 900-page book of day were printed? Did he was it just one, or did he? No, 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 no. It's you can buy it okay. on uh, on Amazon. <laughs> Do you have a copy? Uh, I don't, <laughs> um, but I I would like one. I mean, I think that you are right in that it's important that that it becomes a material object, and and I think just to hold something in your hand that defies you to read it is is a kind of interesting um, reading experience or a non-reading experience. Yeah. It, was, it was taking the idea, it's sort of, I mean, Infinite Jest in a way is a novel a bit like that, isn't it? It sort of presents that. Mm. But then again, but it is in some ways a conventional novel. Mm. So Day takes the idea of something like Infinite Jest or even Gravity's Rainbow. I mean, as you say, these big, deliberately difficult, yeah. deliberately challenging books. And it's kind of, you think that's difficult. How about this? Yeah. <laughs> but, but of course, they're also, I mean, coffee table books in a sense, they're heavy books that no one's expected actually to, to read. Mm. But then again, it, the glossy pictures, they're to be looked at and flicked through. And this obviously isn't, day isn't to be looked at and flicked through because it's, it's all text. Yeah, I think there's something, there's something more interesting in, in day than there is in like having infinite jest on your shelf unread is what a lot of people <laughs> yeah, do but uh, or gravity's <laughs> rainbow but but having day on your shelf like is, is kind of a slightly different thing because it's a book which it's not it's not a guilt trip <laughs> like like gravity's <laughs> rainbow it's not like you get you keep looking at it and thinking oh one day one day i'll read that because day is the the whole point of it is that it can't be read mm -hmm. or not in maybe not in a 
not in a way that makes sense in terms of a of a of novelistic reading. I mean, this is the thing about the the, the nine hundred page book. It feels like a novel. It sort of is asking you to to read it like a novel, but you would be very hard pushed to do so. Although the the critic and champion of conceptual writing, Marjorie Perloff, has read it and says that it's um it's actually got a kind of narrative arc. There's something about about the contents that sort of made narrative sense to her, um, but she, I think she's reading it not as a novel, but as a as a poem, as a mm. as a poetic piece, as a kind of nine hundred page poem. And, and is it in order? It begins with the news headlines on the front yeah. page and goes through to the sport. It's not. It does, but but the um, I think the the point about a newspaper is that you can't really do that because how do you decide whether one article should come after you know another article because because newspapers aren't linear in in exactly the same way as a, as a book is it they're they're kind of arranged on the page in order of kind of visual importance maybe but but it doesn't have the same linearity no that's true even at that there's a, a bit of a digression but the the film poster for towering inferno that apparently mm. paul newman and steve mcqueen's agents argued about who would have top billing and the eventual agreement that one of them would be higher up, but one of them would be further to the left, so that they could both be said to have been to appear first on the poster. Um, yeah, <laughs> is that that sort of hierarchy? Whereas in a in a book, you don't have that. But also the adverts. I mean, like newspapers have adverts, and the text the text of the adverts is included. Oh, wonderful! But where do they go? And it's all and. Do the headline are the headlines set as chapter headings or is it all? No, I don't think so. Not always. I think that they're it's um, the formatting is stripped out. Wonderful. Which brings on a bit the idea of the the book in a box. So all magazines in a box, which the magazine Aspen, which is catalogued on UbuWeb, and you can actually read. It's all been scanned in, and you can yeah. read it. And it's because actual copies of it go on eBay for thousands. Uh, hundreds. hundreds. I think you can okay. you can you can still get certain issues, but there are particularly rare ones like the Andy Warhol pop art issue is particularly hard to get hold of. And what was Aspen? Aspen was um it was a multimedia magazine in a box, and it ran for about six years in uh, from 1965, and each issue was guest edited by somebody different so each was slightly different in format but the whole thing was completely eclectic there was no rule or kind of thematic coherence or consistency across the issues so each editor could do exactly what they wanted and so it featured a lot of the kind of who's who of 1960s counterculture there was William Burroughs, John Cage, Marcel Duchamp, David Hockney, John Lennon, Yoko Ono. And it was conceived by Phyllis Johnson, who was a former editor for Women's Wear Daily, (laughs) which is a bit um, unlikely. And it was inspired by Aspen, Colorado, which was at that time a popular ski resort. But there doesn't seem to be any link with Aspen. Like when you're reading, you're you're kind of looking for why <laughs> why it might be called Aspen. But it but the whole thing is a kind of strange box of delights. Like you kind of open it, and there are things to be unfolded, like 
puzzles to be made. There are flexi discs. There are kind of strange fragments and oddments. So they had music and and words and and pictures and. But also miscellaneous, just lots of things that don't fit into those categories, just like strange oddments or things that you can't quite make sense of. Maybe that's the interesting thing about Aspen. It's a it's a it, it's a bit like a puzzle that like you're kind of opening it and trying to make sense of what's what's in there. I mean, that's it's a bit like a B.S. Johnson novel or that that one B.S. Johnson novel that was. Yeah, the unfortunates. Um, but that it, I don't know. I mean, the the unfortunates is interesting, but it's quite um, it seems quite rule bound compared compared to Aspen because it's quite uniform in that it's not even that it's completely loose leaf. The chapters can be read in any order, but they are they are sort of bound as little fascicles, little chapters. Whereas Aspen is more, it's got a, a kind of collection of things, but you don't quite know how how to put them together. Yeah, there isn't there isn't an answer. They're, they're all different kinds of objects. Yeah, it's. I suppose also it's not. Whereas the Unfortunates is a book in a box. It's very much kind of a print object. Aspen is is something slightly different in that these are sort of strange material objects. You know, they don't all belong seem to belong together. Aspen Aspen number seven, which was the the British issue, it was called, and it was edited by Mario Amaya, um, and included a, a sewing pattern for British knickers by Ozzy Clark. It was an extract from excerpt from Crash was in it, J.G. Ballard's Crash, and also um, John Lennon's diary. And Christopher Logue reading some poems, including one called A Policeman is Walking. A policeman is walking from London to Glasgow. His handkerchief is wet with tears. And as he walks, he cries, I do not want to be cremated when I die. I do not want to be buried in consecrated ground. I want to be buried under the M1, where the traffic never stops. And those who drive this way can say, Round about here a policeman is buried. He died of love. Three criminals were driving up to town in a stolen car. As they passed the policeman, the first one shouted, Goodbye, father. And the second shouted, Goodbye, brother. And the third one shouted, Goodbye, my love. Another book in a box which you've wrote about on the LW blog quite is Kane's Jawbone, the the puzzle. And that's so that's sort of a murder mystery in a box, but the reader has to solve it as a puzzle, is that right? That was invented by a crossword um setter in the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Torquemada. Yeah. Who supposedly invented the the cryptic crossword, but he was also a big Who Done It fan. So he combined these two interests in this kind of puzzle in a box called um, Kane's Jawbone. Although actually, when he published it, uh, it wasn't actually loose leaf. He It was kind of published in the Torquemada puzzle book, but you had to cut out each of the pages. So you would make it loose leaf, and then you had to rearrange the pages in the correct order. So the, the conceit was that it was a whodunit, but it had accidentally been published in the wrong order. And your job as the the kind of puzzle solver is to read it 
and reorder the pages, solve the mystery, as in you had to kind of work out who each of the murderers was and who their victims were. It's supposedly the most difficult puzzle that has ever been devised. That's its claim to fame. And it was reissued last year, wasn't it? Or the year before? Uh, I think the year before it was uh, reissued in uh, collaboration with Shandy Hall. So Patrick Wildgust, who who runs Shandy Hall, um, Lawrence Stern's old home, which is kind of, which he opens as a, a gallery and museum. So he came across um, a copy of Kane's Jawbone um, and the solution was missing. So the solution had been missing for decades and he had to track it down, which he, he did, but he won't reveal exactly how he did that. And so then it was reissued in, um, in loose leaf form in a box, which makes it much easier to kind of rearrange the, the pages. And I, my copy never arrived because the bookshop I ordered it from it was returned mangled to the bookshop who'd sent it to me. <laughs> so not, and then it had sold out, so they weren't able to send me another oh. copy, which does make me wonder if it ever existed or if the whole thing is some another practical joke, which you're somehow part of. <laughs> and you, you did solve, you did more, you did, you almost solved it, or you did solve it, yeah. No, I, 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 uh, I didn't, I didn't get all the pages in the right order, but I did um, get the 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 murderers and murderees correct but it but it's a lot of it's 500 pages or something i mean it's some maybe not that much but 100 no it's it's 100 but 100 is a lot when they're all loose leaf as we're talking about large numbers something like raymond cano's however many some milliard poem however many it is the son 100,000 billion 100,000 billion which is the so it's ten lines. I don't. I don't know how many strips there are, but yeah, uh, you're good at maths, aren't you? This is ten to the power of fourteen. Yeah, that would make sense because they're the fourteen lines. So, so there are ten. It's ten pages. Yeah. I mean, I've never actually seen a physical copy of it. I've only ever sort of heard it described. But it's ten pages, and you can turn. But each line of the sonnet, you can turn. Yeah. So it's strips. It's just lots and lots of. Uh, Thin strips, yeah. So you have 10 choices for the first line and then 10 choices for the second. So you have these 10 to the 14, which is 100,000 billion or whatever. Um, or another one, a book similar to that, is the Nanny Balestrini's Tristano, which was, okay, which is more elaborate than that. I can't, I have, <laughs> I have, I have an Italian hand and an English copy here. And the idea of that, that there would be 109, over 109 trillion versions of it. Because it's got ten chapters and they're pairs of paragraphs, and they're all reorganised in these different ways, which enable there to be these this many different copies of it. And when he devised it in the sixties, obviously printing a book in that way was prohibitively expensive. But with print on demand printing now, this thing that was more or less purely conceptual in the sixties is now. I mean, obviously they haven't got anywhere near the hundred and nine trillion copies of it. But are they the kind of books that might find their way onto Ubu Web, or are they too programmatic? I mean, Balestrini said something about reaching toward something to a dream of meaning. So, are they are they purely conceptual, or is they are they still meant to be read? You, so, with the Cano, you you pick your sonnet and then you read it as you would a conventional sonnet, as it were. Well, I think maybe that Balestrini and Cano's works that you're talking about here, they maybe they show that those those things don't need to be in opposition; that something can be 
formally inventive, but can still be readable. You know, we can still um, find um, meaning in it. But also, what maybe what's interesting about them is that by playing around with the conventions of the Codex book, they show um, that form, physical form, and medium are always shaping meaning. So we might take the Codex for granted, but it's it's a particular physical arrangement of text that shapes always shapes how we read. So it, it the, the Codex book itself is a conceptual apparatus. Um, and this becomes quite clear if you think um, historically about the book. Um, so it's only from quite a modern perspective that Balestrini and Quinault might seem like these kind of outliers, these con- conceptual formal experiments. In the context of the book's longer history, they seem a lot less strange so we assume that all printed editions of a book, for example, should be um, the same. They should have the same text in the same order, that one copy of Jane Eyre should be identical to any other, um, or it should have the same, at least have the same text in the same order. But for much of the history of printing and book production, that wasn't the case. And error and discrepancy were the norm. So the kind of variation that we find in Balestrini's Tristano was a a common feature of uh, early modern books, for example. That was just the norm. And similarly, Quinault's um, strip book, his 100,000 billion poems, also has precursors, historical precursors. So many Victorian children's books use that structure visually to create new combinations of bodies, heads and legs, for example. And if we go back further, there's a textual example that uses a surprisingly similar structure to Quinault's book. There's a 17th century French book called La Confession Coupée, which used this kind of strip format, not for experimental literary purposes, but as a kind of aid memoir for confessing your sins. So each of your sins would be printed on one of these horizontal strips, and then you would uh, tuck it into the margins of the book as you committed each one, so that you would remember to uh, tell your priest about it. Okay, so they're they're more sort of conventional than old-fashioned than they realised they were being almost there. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a kind of, it's a very presentist perspective to think, well, this is totally, you know, playing um, incredible new games with the the structure of the book. But actually, if you look back far enough, you'll, you'll probably find that someone, you know, it's already part of the history of the book. And also the books like the Ulysses was full of errors, wasn't it? when it was first printed, isn't that? Mm. And it's sort of the, the early editions are all quite different from each other. And even the you know, the first three editions of Tom Jones are all quite different, that Fielding rewrote it and as, as it was being reprinted in those early... So that idea of the fixed, canonical, def- definitive text is, a, is quite... Yeah, a, that's yeah. a very modern yeah. idea. I mean, the other thing about the Codex is, it is it's, I mean, it's an astonishing piece of technology and, the, and it is a way of containing so much information mm. in such a compact form and also easily searchable you know i mean a, 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 a codex with with an index in it is one of the i mean has never been 
surpassed as a way of storing and retrieving information almost. Well, I don't know. Maybe you should tell that to the Greeks because they were quite happy with the, well, <laughs> their own system. Yeah, but with, with scrolls. But then, yeah, but then the codex was invented and we never looked back as well. I mean, no one's gone back to scrolls. Or have they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that maybe that's the sort of... I, I would say that although the codex has been dominant for you know at least a thousand years it's not it's never been you know it's never had total dominance there's always been other forms um uh you know the scroll has the scroll didn't die out the scroll has continued to have all kinds of different functions and i mean it, it, the scrolls continued into the early modern period as genealog- genealogical devices i mean it's a better way to form to store certain kinds of information genealogies family trees um certain kinds of records and similarly folding concertina books i mean they had a a massive revival in the 18th and 19th century as uh, as ways to for example show uh, visual panoramas so even before we get to the 19th century, when there was all kinds of formal invention with the books and with the physical book, and we had, you know, tab books, pop-up books, movable books, even before that, it's not quite true to say that the codex book was invented and we never looked back. There's always been another kind of parallel set of book forms that have accompanied it and that have never gone away. And in a way, they've uh, had a new lease of life in the 21st century when artists are suddenly drawn to experimenting with the page and thinking about all these different shapes and forms that it might take. So the idea that you had the book as the material object, but of course this the Uber web by its nature is, is completely immaterial because it's, it's online, it's a website, it's a catalogue, it's digitised. Is there a tension there between that you know, the, the a book like Day, which is all about its materiality. And then, I mean, are they different projects or are they part of the same project? I think you'd have to say that they're part of the same project in that they're it's all part of Kenneth Goldsmith's, um, you know, capacious career. But um, I think you're right, there is a tension in that he he's very interested in the object of the book, like the the book is a physical thing and what happens when you put things into it, like certain kinds of things that don't seem to belong there, what happens when you put them in book form. But um, with UbuWeb, he's quite insistent that um, even though, for example, the contents of of Aspen are all digitised and put online and he has lots and lots of scanned concrete poetry for example he's quite insistent that then that we don't read them as kind of inferior secondary digital copies but that we sort of see them as objects in their own right a little bit like um Andy Warhol's kind of smudged screen prints so they're they're sometimes slightly duff digital quality or you know pixelated film or whatever is part of the point for goldsmiths because like, we're what we're doing is is thinking about how media shape the the text and image and the artworks that you interact with so by putting it online 
in a new form you're creating a new yeah you're creating a new artwork exactly so like a blurry photograph of a painting or yeah so it's that it's not it's not the mona lisa itself it's a new digital work and is that i mean there's a, the copyright question which is quite interesting around it and obviously and he is very cavalier about copyright one part of me thinks that's all right for him to say because he's a tenured professor at University of Pennsylvania and people who have to make a living from selling the art that they make may feel differently about about copyright. Of course, a lot of the artists whose work he takes are themselves taking work that's already in copyright and making something new out of it, like The Sound of the End of Music by Vicky Bennett. Yeah. So there, does everyone whose work he has on UbuWeb, does it all come from them? Does he have permission from... All, I mean, where the copyright questions come in, does does he have Vicky Bennett's permission to carry her stuff? No, copyright doesn't come into it because he never, ever asks, asks for permission. <laughs> so n- mm. no money ever changes hands, no permissions are ever asked and no permissions are ever granted. So it's it's like copyright doesn't exist. Okay. So his book is called Duchamp is My Lawyer because his whole kind of get-out clause is... I don't believe in copyright because the whole foundational gesture of the avant-garde was Duchamp's ready-made. So Duchamp took a urinal and put it in a gallery and, you know, it became art. So Goldsmith's logic is that this kind of gesture of appropriation is what the avant-garde should look like. So its whole logic is about appropriation. So you can't then impose the kind of laws of ownership and, and copyright on it. So I suppose he's tr- he's kind of trying to make the avant-garde consistent with its own its own aesthetic logic. So I there is a sort of ethics question which you brought up there about you know what happen what happens to people who kind of who need to make money from their art unlike goldsmith so a lot of his book is a is a defense of of what ubu ubu web does and a kind of a big two fingers to to the whole kind of concept of copyright one point that he makes is that if you're an obscure sound poet you're very unlikely to be missing out on any royalties so he's not kind of he's giving you exposure rather than taking something away but also, if you really don't want to be on UbuWeb, you can just write him an email and tell him to take your stuff down, which he will, okay. gladly. And um, he does that all the time. And he used to have a wall of shame for artists who refused to play the game and who didn't want to share for free. But now he's quite um, he's quite contrite about that now. He's quite apologetic and quite willing to entertain people's objections. So if they don't want to have their material, their artwork, their whatever on UbiWeb, he'll apologise and he'll take it down. I suppose that the question of that you, you talk about in the piece about context, defining what counts as avant-garde art and, and what doesn't, and of course, because you put Duchamp puts a urinal in a in a gallery and that makes it but it's but it's also about the artist's intention, which seems or well, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems a sort of a slightly old-fashioned idea that if if someone says what I'm creating is art, then that the the intention, the artist's intention matters as well as the the context of where it's put and other people's views of it. Because you you talk about all those 
I mean, the millions of videos on YouTube and on TikTok of people unwrapping their new games consoles or whatever. Yeah. And how do you does how is avant garde art distinguished from that? But what would it take to turn a video of someone unwrapping a games console into a work of art? Is it for them to call it unwrapping my games console <laughs> a work of art by by Tom Jones or or for Goldsmith or someone like Goldsmith to put it in a gallery or an online equivalent of a gallery to claim it as art? I think probably all it would take would be for for somebody like Goldsmith to put, you know, said video, unboxing video in an institutional setting, like so within the virtual gallery walls of, of UbiWeb. So all it would take would be someone to curate it as art. That that would be one one answer. I mean, for all we know, there might be a generation of up-and-coming art students who are all making semi-ironic unboxing videos, even as we speak, and it's now a kind of, it already is a an art genre. But I think that the, maybe the point is that the boundaries of, you know, between art and life that we might think once existed in a kind of firm way have become very permeable and hard to discern on the internet. Whereas decontextualization and recontextualization of found objects was this kind of 20th century signature avant-garde gesture. In the 21st century, we're in a kind of slightly different situation where this kind of movement of text or image or cultural artefacts from one context to another is just the sort of everyday norm of life online because things are very fluid and we're always encountering things whose original meaning is difficult to know and like things where we're we're not sure things which we're not sure are ironic or satirical or or serious in intent. So maybe the more interesting or disconcerting possibility is not what happens when things are moved into the realm of art, but the other way around, when they kind of make their way out of art and into the real world. And I'm thinking about, not about unboxing videos, but about the performance artist Marina Abramovich, I don't know if you know about this, but her work has become drawn into some really dark and strange conspiracy narratives involving Pizzagate and and QAnon. So Marina Abramovich draws on imagery of the occult in some of her work, like uh, I suppose um, in a a sort of ironic way uh, to do with uh, witchcraft. But in conspiracy theory circles, this is read not as a as a kind of artistic or aesthetic gesture, but it's read very literally as evidence of Satanism. So something about that movement seems like a very sort of twenty first century inversion of this avant garde recontextualization, where art kind of makes its way out of the gallery walls and into real life and into some really unexpected context. I mean, obviously, in a very real. I mean, QAnon is real life, but on the other, yeah. it's sort of it's a fantasy world that owes a lot to. I don't know how much that whole question of the giant conspiracy and how much that comes from Hollywood movies and a sort of a, 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 not only Marina Abramovich but a kind of a, sort of more mass market art forms so sort of yeah. informed it as well. I mean, the whole thing is a is a gigantic collage of, like you said, like science fiction movies. It's a, it's a mashup. It it itself is a, is QAnon is a mashup. But I suppose the point is that it, it the way that it's 
read by its adherents is not as a, a fiction or an artwork or a, or a, a fantasy, but it's positioned as it in the midst of real life. Yeah, so almost, almost like a religion, but not exactly. But, but as a way of explaining the world, as a, as a myst, semi-mystical mm. explanation for explaining the yeah the inexplicable. I think about other ways in which that, that books get transformed into different media, unexpected or even moving into life. The um that you wrote about the this man who turns who turned the Milton's complete works into boxes of pills, Stephen Emerson. That's right, Steve Emerson. So I've got um, a long-running interest in artists who do strange things to books. So uh, I tracked Stephen Emerson down when I found out what he was up to because he he experiments with the book in um, some very literal senses. So he's grown mushrooms on Rilke. He's sanded and painted E.P. Thompson's Making of the English Working Class. And he makes what he calls pill poems, in other words, like little sugar pills, to be swallowed with a glass of water. And he gets he does readings where he he asks his audience to take one of these poems and then, for example, to look at a blank piece of paper and imagine the in- incredible poem that might be written on it. So what I did ages ago was um, I sent Stephen a copy of, well, it was Milton's collected works, but it had a piece, uh, a text called Areopagitica in it, which is a sort of anti-censorship polemic that Milton wrote. And it has a line in it about books being not dead things, but uh, they do preserve, um, as in a vial, the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. So I sent Stephen this thing, wondering what he would do, and then nothing happened for ages and ages. And then last year, in the very early days of lockdown, I got um, a, a parcel through the post and it was a box with es- the, with the label Essence of Milton on it. And inside was a, a little row of glass files with these little white tablets inside and a set of postcards showing what he'd done, showing the process involved. And he'd put this book into a, a jar of liquid and soaked it for a long time and then kind of taken out some of this uh, liquid essence and used it to soak these pills. So what I'd got inside these glass files was a pill version of Milton. Should I wish to take it? Essence of Milton. <laughs> Did you Have you taken any? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> You're the editor with Adam Smythe, who you mentioned earlier, and yeah. another colleague of this new journal, Inscription, the Journal of Material Text, mm. which that does a lot of these things that you've been talking about, doesn't it? That you have, like The first issue had a hole in it, or the next second issue is going to have a hole in it? <laughs> No, the second issue is not going to have a hole in it, but it is all about holes. Okay. The first issue had a hole in it, but it was about beginnings. Right. Yeah, so the editors are me, Adam Smythe, who's a professor of book history at Oxford, and Simon Morris, who's he runs Information as Material, which is a artist book publishing house. So what our aim is, um, is to bring together two things that have a lot to say to each other but don't normally overlap, which is book history, um, the kind of often quite strange and um, unexplored 
kind of story of of all the different forms that the book has taken and uh, contemporary experiments with with the book and with writing so we're kind of we're trying to put those together but do it in a way which is itself quite inventive so one of our models is Aspen the multimedia magazine in a box so we are a multimedia magazine we don't we're not in a box but issue one came with um, a vinyl LP and pull out artwork and and complimentary hold. And do you think that well your interest but a general renewed interest if it is renewed in the books as physical objects is has to do with I don't know if a reaction to the internet or just or a way of thinking about it that how do we what if so many things can now be done online from this conversation that we're having now to everything else that so we we look for things and you can read online and all the rest of it so looking for things in a physical book which you can't replicate online yeah i think so i mean there's definitely a been a, a renew an interest in the book as a as a physical artifact in all kinds of contexts i mean there's a kind of there's a nostalgia for the the printed book which is definitely um a symptom of of the digital age but i think um you can see it in in art as well like there's a, a there's a, a whole genre of book art which involves kind of doing i mean we were just talking about stephen emerson and i think maybe that this that's you know he might be one example of this but you know people making sculptures out of books so thinking about what what was kind of strange very physical and very visceral about books but which we didn't see before they were kind of the page was something that we took for granted but now has kind of emerged in in a very new physical light so I think that is what we're doing with inscription we're sort of trying to put the page in front of you in a way that is kind of hard to that is a challenge you know it's it it makes its presence its physical presence felt yeah because there used to be an idea i can't remember where i got this from maybe peter campbell who the designer at the lrb said it that the this idea that an ideal page is is almost transparent that you don't when you're reading Mm -hmm. it the book doesn't get in the way of the reading experience but obviously sometimes you you want you you want it to yeah, I mean, so it's sometimes it's really interesting mm. when it when it does. And I, and I suppose going back to something, some of those things on UberWeb, whether you know day or or the numbers one to a thousand in alphabetical order. Again, it's that mm. yeah, that's creating that difficulty, isn't it? It's kind of here are words, and you look at words, and you assume you're meant to read them, and then here is something which makes that as as difficult as possible. Which then yeah, I suppose raises questions about all the things which are too easy to read. And that, I mean, I guess advertising and. That kind of the advertising which makes you read things you don't want to, like the back of the cereal packet. It would be nice if that was more difficult to read than it is. Yeah, but I think you're right that the, the that we we're reading all day, every day, and especially on screens. And it, it's the logic of of all all of the gadgets that we're surrounded by is is to make everything easier. Is you know always to try and make things easier, more accessible. So you don't even have to think about it. Everything's just a kind of a, a swipe away or, a, you know, nothing should be a challenge. So it's interesting to completely invert that and say, you know, get a load of this big heavy book or, you know, <laughs> this page that you have to really think about in order to, to find your way around. What are you going to do with this object? 
Jill Partington, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. You can read Jill Partington's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with TJ Clark on Hieronymus Bosch, Neil Asherson on written and unwritten constitutions, Jenny Turner on Sybil Bedford, and Catherine Rundle considers the stalk. <laughs>